Psalms 95. Uh, we are kind of in between sermon series. We've been talking about the family and marriage and family. And we're uh, next week we're going to start in the, the book of Romans. So that is going to be an exciting, fun time. But as I was kind of thinking about and seeking how the Lord was leading me, I, I went and I talked to, to Craig. And uh, I said, Craig, who leads worship here for us today, I said, uh, Craig, how can I come alongside you guys as a worship team and communicate some of the things that you're studying and some of the truths that you're trying to relay to us. And uh, so he suggested what uh, Psalms 95, and we're actually going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 as well today, briefly. But uh, he also gave me this book, because I want you guys to know, th- these guys just don't like get together, drink coffee, pick out songs, and show up on Sunday, okay? Um, they work at it. Um, they study Scripture. Uh, they spend time. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that they do together is they're going through this book called uh, Worship Matters, uh, Leading Others to Encounter the Greatness of God. And so as I was looking through this and, and reading some different parts of it, there was one particular beginning of a chapter that I thought I would, I would share with you and something that, they're, that shows you their heart. But it, it, the author writes this in this chapter called A Faithful Worship Leader. He said, in recent years, worship has hit the big time. Ten of the top 50 Christian albums and worship projects, and um, or ten of the top 50 Christian albums are worship projects, and other worship artists have become household names. The successful marketing of worship music inside and outside the walls of the church has changed what church sings and how we understand worship. Of course, in God's eyes, true worship has always been big time. But the growing prominence and commercialization of worship music with all its benefits has some drawbacks. For me, it brings unique temptations to worship leaders in the local church. We read about well-known worship artists and their CD sales, concert tours and media interviews, and we wonder if we're doing something wrong. We start to think we'd be more effective if we looked, sounded, and acted like the worship leaders everyone knows. But the worship industry isn't the standard God has given us to determine our effectiveness. His word is. And if we don't understand that distinction, we could miss God's unique plan for our lives. We will be tempted to surrender to discouragement. We'll fail to see that God hasn't called us to be successful or popular, but he's called us to be faithful. I like that. That's what these guys are trying to do is they lead us trying to be faithful to what God has called us and what their guide and what the guide is, is the truth of God's word. And so I want to guide you this morning and I want us to look at a passage of scripture here in Psalms 95 that teaches us some of what our worship ought to look like. So if you would, I want you to first stand with me though. If you stand, we're going to read together a portion of Psalms 95, all right? So we're going to do something unique and different for us. We're going to read this together, and we're going to follow along and read God's Word together. So follow along with me. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are His also, The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, 
And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Amen. If you would, sit back down. Thank you. You guys did a great job in that. I could hear you clearly. Great. As we look at this passage, in the portion that we just read, we actually see what I believe are two exhortations for us, or two imperatives. And then in the last four verses, which we haven't read yet, we'll see another imperative. And so there's really three truths about worship that I think we're commanded and called to today that I want to share with you. And the first one is this. It's found in verses 1 and 2. It's first is this, that we need to joyfully sing praises to the Lord. We need to joyfully sing praises to the Lord. He calls us to that. And so how do we do this? Well, let me share three things with how this, what this looks like. First, I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2. Look at the text with me. Look together. Look at your cell phone. All right? What does it say in there? Look at this. Notice. It says, first of all, I believe our praise is to be focused or God-centered. It's to be focused on God. Look, look at what the text says. To the Lord. To the rock of our salvation. Before His presence. To Him with psalms, or we might say uh, uh, songs of praise. This, all that we're doing here is we're, it's directed towards God. And you say, well, Matt, that's pretty obvious. Well, that, that's a given. We know that's what we're doing. Why, why are you making a point of this? Because I don't know about you, but it's not that easy for me to keep my focus solely on God when I come in here. It's not. I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are a lot of distractions. I mean, we, we can be distracted just simply by the issues of life. The issues of life, what happened when I drove here? What happened as I drove here and I yelled at the kid in the back? It could be those kind of issues that we, we bring with us. Or it might just be simply the skills of the musician. I mean, how, how often does it throw us off when one musician misplays a note or forgets to start or a keyboard's not here today. What's the deal with that? I actually had someone in the first service tell me that was the deal. We get distracted by those things. We're distracted by personal preferences of styles of worship. I have my personal preferences but I have had to learn that the personal preferences to style of worship really has to be a secondary thing. It's not unimportant, but it's a secondary issue. The, the, the real issue needs to be, where is my focus on God? Is it focused towards Him? There's also the distraction to simply feel or experience some sort of excitement. And I'm not against that at all. Matter of fact, we're going to see from this text that we're called to be joyful. But my experience... My feelings are not what is preeminent of why we come in worship. It's secondary. It actually comes as a result, or can come as a result, of my focus being on God. Second, I want you to notice something else here, too. So it's, it's God-centered, it's God-focused. But also look back at the text. Notice it's, it's in community. Notice the plural pronouns in verses 1 and 2. It says, let us sing, let us shout joyfully. The rock of our salvation, our salvation. Let us come, let us shout joyfully. That is, we're called to worship in community with each other. Now, I know we'll go, well, can't I worship in in private? Yeah, you should. You better. You need to. But it it actually is going to fuel your worship here corporately. But, that, and I've heard this excuse, I don't really have to go to church, I can just 
have my service at home? And I would say, no. I mean, there might be times you do that, but no. We, we, we need to understand that we are a body of believers, that we are united under the person of Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ. Romans 12 tells us that we're actually members of one another. We have ownership in each other's lives. So we must worship together. All right, let me show you a, a passage from uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I, I love this passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. It's talking about the body and the growth of the church. But here he comes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And he says this, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So how do, how do I walk skillfully? How do I, how do, I do this? Then verse 17 says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Hey, you want to know what the will of the Lord is? I mean, we're always wanting to know what the will of the Lord is. I'm about to tell you what the will of the Lord is. Then he says this, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. That is, filling with the Spirit is simply yielding yourselves to the truth and leading of the Holy Spirit. And when we yield ourselves to Him, He actually takes, not that we have any more of the Holy Spirit, but that He has more of us. He takes control of our lives. He guides us. He directs us. He leads us. He empowers us even in uh, greater ways. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Then look what it says here. Speaking to one another. So we're the body, the community. We're speaking to one another. And what are we speaking to each other? What are we saying? Look what it says. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So it's still God-centered. It's still focused. But here's the truth I want you to see. When we make it about God, when we're focused on God, what God turns around in His greatness is He turns around your focus and your adoration of Him, and He uses it to speak into the lives of the others who are part of the body of Christ. You get that? See how powerful that is? I remember back in my high school days when uh, I used to, I had this silly notion about uh, worship and what it was about. This is back in the days when uh, you went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, all right? Anybody remember those days? Okay. I did. That's how I grew up. And it wasn't just like a, you know, this is just a prayer meeting. It was like full out service, all right? But I used to, I got into this notion, particularly when I started driving, you know, I used to kind of rationalize with myself, you know, if I just make it there for the sermon, if I just pull up and get there for the sermon, I could I'd check it out. I got my service in, right? Wrong. God kind of did some work in my heart. And he began to teach me some things as he continues to do it. It hasn't stopped with me. He keeps doing that. And he began to teach me. He says, Matt, the sermon's important because it's my truth. But that's not it. You worship me through hearing the word of God, but... You also worship me by coming and singing unto me and magnifying me, coming before and praying together. Matt, also I want to use you in a greater way because when you come and you worship unto me and you pray unto me, I want to use you to come along somebody else and stir them along in their worship of me and in their prayer to me. And so I began to learn the power of being a part of the body of Christ and worshiping together in song and prayer and word. What it does is it really has a home court of effect on you. Y'all know what home court advantage is? I do. I love the home court advantage back in the days of, of, of basketball. 
There was nothing like it when you would you'd be playing at home because you could be playing at home and you might just be throwing some shots off. You know, you might can't even hit the broadside of a barn. You might just not just feeling as zippy and enthusiastic as you were. And but what would happen? It's because we were, we were playing at home where I played up growing up. It, we used to pack it out, you know. We packed it out. The band was playing. And you knew they were all on the same course with you. They weren't out there on the court. They weren't experiencing what you were experiencing or going through what you were going through. But they were cheering you on. They were yelling for the team. And it had this effect that it began to energize you and move you to become more focused on what you were there to do. And so, too, does worship and so too it should in fact i quote this many people ask why they need to go to church worshiping with other believers allows people pushing towards the same goal to gather in spirit worshiping together sparks a view of god bigger than whatever situation folks may be going through see here's the reality I may be going through difficulties and struggles in life, but it's amazing when I come and when I come and I sing of the greatness of God. And then I, as I, I, as I begin to sense other people around me, I begin to realize, you know what? I'm not the only one who believes in this great God. Matter of fact, this God is so great. Not only has he changed my heart, but he has changed the hearts of all these other people around us. All of us are in this faith. All of us are, are exhorting and worshiping this God. And it strengthens me as we do this in community. You need to realize that's what's happening when we worship and we sing together. I want you to notice a third thing. Go back to the verses 1 and 2 again. Notice here as well. It says, uh, I, I see also we're called to worship with a vocal, vibrant, and vigorous praise as well. Look at, look what the text says. It says, sing for joy to the Lord. Again, this, this idea of sing for joy is probably not even strong enough. The, the Hebrew behind it carries the, the note of with a uh, ringing cry is, is what should be happening. Then it says again, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. That, that word shout joyfully carries the idea to raise a shout. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And again, it says let us shout joyfully. I agree with what, what commentator said. He says, the, uh, these verses leave no room for apathetically mumbling through a few songs while your mind is elsewhere. That's not what this psalm teaches. This psalm doesn't teach us that we can just kind of mumble through it. We say, man, I don't always know the words. Well, learn them, okay? Use that service and learn them and sing them because you're singing to God. And I'm not talking about just chaotic, ecstatic, or out-of-control emotion. I, I don't, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about at all. The, the psalmist leads us here that this is exuberance, enthusiastic, but is channeled to constructive words and beautiful melodies that express our joy and our thankfulness to our God. And there should be enthusiasm. I mean, if we're singing this, do we really believe it? And if we do, we should sing it joyfully and enthusiastically. And again, I'm not talking about style here. One of my, my fondest memories of worship were in my seminary days. And in my seminary days, it was mainly guys. We would all pack into this chapel. And because our president, Chuck Swindoll, favored uh, hymns, guess what we sang in chapel all the time? We sang hymns, okay? But it was powerful, though. Um, I like a mixture of other things just besides hymns, but we would get there, and then uh, we had our chaplain, his name was Chaplain Bill, and we'd be singing these hymns. They'd be leading us along like this, and every once in a while, he'd whip out his trumpet. I mean, how often do we see a trumpet, you know? But he brings out this trumpet, and he, he just blares it, and it, it was good. 
And it was awesome to sit around and hear all these guys singing these, these great hymns of the faith. A lot of them we don't even hear that often anymore. And what I realized from that, it's not an issue of style that, that moves your exuberance. The issue is, who are we singing about? Who are we singing to? That's what drives our enthusiasm and our exuberance. I can get an amen on that. That's what moves us. Now, one of the things we have to ask is, and, and by the way, there are other forms of worship. We'll see this here in a moment. There's, there's times when it, it, it's not as joyful. It's, there's times where it's silent. Sometimes it's contemplative. Sometimes it's, it's tears even. But one of the questions we'll have is, well, Matt, what if I do not feel joy? What if I don't feel it? Here you are, you call me to sing this way, but I don't always feel it. Guess what? I don't either. Tony Evans gives me some perspective on this, though, when he writes, he said, should you sing with joy because of your circumstances? Not necessarily. Is there joy because everything is perfect at home? No. Joy because there are no problems in your life? No. Then he says this, the joy is because you are bringing all that mess to a great God. So regardless of what it is in your life, whether you come in here and you're like, I don't feel joyous, you can have a settled peace and a joy to know that whatever mess you're going through in life, that you have a God that is so great and that is so awesome that he'll meet you in that mess and he'll walk you through that mess. And I would say there's a reason to joy in that regardless of how you feel. Amen? And notice now, he tells you about this greatness. He tells you why you should worship with such vigor and vibrance. Look at verse 3 with me. Look at that text there. It says, for the Lord, that is Yahweh, that's his covenant-keeping name. He says, the Lord is a great God. He's a great God. Now, I say that, and I say great, and that really, in our English language, doesn't hold a lot of weight with us, does it? And we, we use great so much. I mean, we use great for hot fudge Sundays. We use great for peanut butter and jelly and milk at night. I say that's great, by the way. And, and so it doesn't hold its power. We also do that with the word awesome. Awesome, too. It's just used for everything. Everything's awesome. All right? Well, my, my, my daughter, one of my daughters, helped redeem the true meaning of that word awesome. Just a couple weeks ago, we were we had just finished up dinner, and uh, I had decided to have one of those quick family devotions that were unplanned. But fortunately, I had a book over here, like you know, I can just do a quick family devotion quickly. So I did it, and we read through it. And then somehow, in the midst of this family devotion that we read, which I can't even remember for sure what it was about, uh, we got to the topic of the Trinity or the Triunity of God. So I hear him with my 11-year-old, my 9-year-old, and 7-year-old, and they're asking questions about how can there be one God but three persons, and they were confused. And so I said, all right, I didn't want to waste my theological degree, so I got out a piece of paper. I said, give me a piece of paper, all right? Give me a pen, all right? I want it. And so then I began to draw a picture, and I have it, and it didn't look like that, all right? But it looked close, sort of not, but it was a triangle I was trying to make. And well, so I began to work through it with them. 
And I, read, I wrote out there that God is one in essence, that, that he is God. He is one. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that, all right? And many other passages tell us that. But then I said at the same time, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God as well. And I reference different texts that point that truth out to us. But yet at the same time that they're that, we know that they're distinct. They're not moving from one to the other because we know at the baptism of Jesus, uh, we see the presence of God speaking from above. We see Jesus being baptized. We see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. So I'm explaining all this to them, and then I'm noticing them looking at me like this. And then I began to say, you know what? Dad can sit here and explain it to you, but I don't fully comprehend it as well. And I stopped in that moment. I says, okay, guys, what does that tell us about our God? The fact that we can sit here and we can talk about it, we can explain it, but we can't fully comprehend this reality and this truth which Scripture reveals. What does it say to us about our God? And there was that long pause, and I thought, man, I really biffed this one. It was just quiet. And then, in the midst of that quietness, my Hannah, my middle one, she spoke up. She spoke up to the question, what does it say about our, our God? She says, his awesomeness. And I began to levitate off the chair <laughs> because I began to realize, I said, Hannah, you got it. What this points to about our God is it points to his awesomeness. That he is beyond what you and I could ever think or imagine. It, it makes utterly no sense to fashion a, a, a of God made out of some sort of idol because God is so vast and so great. There is no way we can adequately represent who he is. He is that great. He is that awesome. We can't fashion God and put him in a box because he goes beyond that box because of his awesomeness. And that's why we come and we worship with vibrancy and vigor and enthusiasm because of his awesomeness. Now look what the text says. It says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now what he's not saying here is he's not saying that there are other gods in the sense that they're real. What he's saying is he's saying in a very poetic way, he says, there are, these are all other gods or, or false gods or at least whatever is behind them is demonic. It's kind of that attitude that, he, that he's taking there. Because in those days... The Israel's neighbors and oftentimes some of the Israelites themselves got this idea that they would begin to believe in other gods. And as was common amongst their neighbors, they often believed that these gods would, uh, that they were more local deities, that they had certain areas that they were God over. All right, so some there would be gods who were gods of the cave. Then the others would be the gods of the mountains. They often built uh, high places to worship gods. Some would be gods who were, who were the gods of the sea, and others would be the gods of the land. So what does the psalmist do? We'll look back in the text. Look at the text again. He says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, false gods, demonic forces. And then verse 4, In whose hand are the depths of the earth. That takes care of any gods in the caves. Then he says, the peaks of the mountains are also his also. That takes care of any supposed gods up on the mountains on the high places. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. That takes care of any supposed gods you think that rule in the sea, because I rule it. 
Then he says this, and his hands form the dry land. And that takes care of anything else here on earth. And if you go to other Psalms and he will speak about the universe. In essence, what he's saying, I'm so great. I rule over all these things. There is no room, no place for any such false God. I'm in charge. I am the God. That's how great I am. He's telling us not to forget it. He's telling us I'm sovereign over creation. When we look at creation, we ought to be moved by the majesty, the greatness, and the awesomeness of God. Because it's He who made the creation. It's He who controls it and is sovereign over it. I like the story of uh, one of England's most enduring legends. It involves the Danish king, Canute, who, who ruled Britain from 1016 to 1035. He was such an imposing and successful king, uh, the never-ending praise was, was rendered to him from his courtiers. Uh, matter of fact, the courtiers were, were afraid to mutter anything to, to him but flatteries. And King Canute, he grew tired of it. As a matter of fact, one day in uh, the year 1032, he decided to take all his courtiers down to the coast of Northampton. And he, he had his throne brought down as well, and he placed his throne in, in the sand as the tide was coming in. As his advisors stood around him, he asked them this question. He says, uh, you think I am the mightiest of the might? And of course, they said, oh, yes, your majesty, yes. Then he said, you think I can stop the tide? Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yes, your majesty. They said a little more doubt in their voice. Well, looking out at the ocean breakers, King Canute said this. He said, oh, sea, stay, come no further. I, Canute, ruler of the universe, command you. But, but despite his commands, the tides continued to roll in until it was lapping at the feet of, of the king and of the men. And it kept on rolling. The waves began to engulf them more. And it was lapping his knees and coming up his waist. So finally they came to the point to flee for safety and King Canute led the charge. And so they ran up the beach away from the waves. And then King Canute turned around and said to his advisors and courtiers, you see, you see how little I'm obeyed? There's only one Lord over the land and water, the Lord of the universe. It is to him and to him alone you are to offer praise. Then it is said he walked in the town, he took off his, his crown and he sat it in the church. We've got to realize that. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. And He is King over all. And He is to be the focus of our praise and our worship. Now, look at the text here. Because the reality of when we encounter the greatness of God, as we praise, as we declare that truth to Him, about Him, it ought to do something in us. And look what it says here. I believe we should humbly and reverently worship the Lord. Because look at verse 6 with me. It says, come let us worship. Come let us worship. This worship literally carries the idea of to prostrate ourselves. It's the idea, and, and there was certainly a physical part that, that they did. They actually worshiped and they prostrated themselves. Or, or as the text says here, they bowed down and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That is, in light of who He is, He piles on all these verses to show that emphasizing us of getting lower before God. That is, as we encounter the greatness and as we worship God and His greatness, it should cause a sense of all pride to be removed away from our hearts and our lives, and it should cause us to go lower. 
and humble us. Max Fox says this. He says, worship must always lead to surrender. Any other worship is not complete. Do you hear that? Worship must always lead to surrender. Any other worship is not complete. If we're truly praising God and we're believing what we're singing about Him, it ought to do something in our heart. It ought to cause us to lay low and humble ourselves before a great God is what it ought to do. A man was touring an art gallery observing just the beautiful masterpieces on display. And as he approached one painting in particular, he recognized it as a rendering of the crucifixion of Christ. He stopped and he stared at its majestic brushstrokes and stunning depiction of Christ's death. It was just an absolutely beautiful picture. But as he was observing the painting, a tour guide approached him and he began motioning to him to, to get lower. Well... Finally, the kind of puzzle, the guide said to him, well, if you want to truly appreciate the beauty of this painting, you must assume a lower position. He said, because the artist intended it to be viewed from a lower position. It was, it was, it was painted in such a way that you wouldn't get the fullness of it unless you were in a lower position. So the man bent down. He looked over the guard, and the guard said, lower. And... Again, the man followed his instruction. He'd been over, lower at the waist. And the guy said, no, 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 lower still. And finally, the man was bent down and he was kneeling on the carpet and he looked up and only then, from such a lowly posture, could he begin to behold and appreciate the true beauty of that masterpiece, that picture or painting of the crucifixion of Christ. And what I'm telling us, I include myself here, is until we humble ourselves and get the pride out of our life and truly lay ourselves low before God, we will not truly see the masterpiece and the beauty, which is the greatness and awesomeness of God. We won't see it. You've got to go low. You've got to humble yourself. Worship Him. And when you do, begins to tell some more, though, why we would want to do this. I mean, we've already seen the greatness of God. In fact, the uh, Psalms 145.3 is a great psalm. It says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And then it says, And His greatness is unsearchable. I mean, it's just so beyond us. So we, we've hit on the fact that God transcends us. But here's the awesome thing. Not only does God transcend us, is his ways unsearchable, but here's the awesome. Not only is he great, but he's good. And in his goodness, he has come near through his son, Jesus Christ. God is beyond us, but yet he comes near and he makes himself knowable to us through his, the salvation that he's provided. And he, he draws himself to us. Or he draws us to himself. So we have the, the sense, we have the transcendence, but yet we have the intimacy that God provides, the relationship that God provides. Look at the text here, how it makes this known. It says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us, we, got, we need to understand that he made us. 
And, and you've got to recall how he made us. Remember this from Genesis chapter 1. That when he made us, he made us in his image and he made us in his likeness. He made us in his image so that we might represent him, that we are made for the purpose of glorifying him. But he made us in his likeness in order that we might relate to him, that we might have relationship with him. Unlike any other part of his creation, we and we alone have made and made for this intimate relationship with God. That's how he's made us. Then the text goes on, for he is our God. That's personal, our God. It is through Christ. He makes us his children through our faith in Christ. And we are the people of his pasture. The, the idea of pasture is speaking of a shepherd. and speaking, speaking of the provision that he makes for us. A pastor provides food and nourishment for the sheep. So too God, we are the people of his pasture. He provides for us. He makes the provision. And the sheep of his hand, that is the shepherd, protects and he cares and he loves and we're like those sheep in God's hands, this, this great and this awesome God. One of the descriptions of how a shepherd worked with the sheep is this, particularly at night. This is what the shepherd would do. He says, when the, when the sheep were gathered in for the night, the shepherd would count them all. So as the sheep came in into this fold that they often had for them, he, the shepherd would count them all. And as they filed into the sheepfold, he would look one, each one over to see if they were okay. And if he found one that was hurt, he would take it aside and he would tend to its wounds. And, and then he would, he would lie down at the entrance to their fold there with his sheep. And I love that imagery because that's the imagery of our God. This, this great and this awesome and this mighty God who is so beyond us, he comes near and he tends to our wounds, he tends to our hurts, and he keeps count of us. He keeps accord of everything that's going on in our lives. And he protects us, and he guards the way, and our salvation is secure in him. That's our God. And why would we not want to come and humble ourselves before such a great and good God? Why would we not want to prostrate ourselves and bow before him if it's that kind of God that we have, and it is, folks? That's what our God is like. Now, to respond this way, requires a heart, a heart that is soft to sing praises with vibrance, a heart that's soft and willing to humble itself and bow before the Lord. The issue of worshiping this way is really a, a heart issue. And the psalm goes on to help us see this. Look at with me the second half of verse 7. Because see, worship the Lord, we must do it from the heart of faith and obedience. Look at the text. It says, today, that is now, if you, hear the, if you would hear his voice. It speaks of God's word. God has something to say. Actually, God is about to speak here in a moment in this psalm. We've, we've heard from the psalmist, but now the psalmist is going to say something God has to say to, to these worshipers. Now, you've got to understand that this word here in, in the, the Hebrew is important. Because uh, it's not how we often think of, of here. It's not what our kids typically do to us in the, in the van, that they hear something that goes out the other ear, and they really didn't. They say, what? What you say, Mom, Dad? I, I have no idea what you said. All right? That's not the idea here. The idea here is when you, you see the word Shema in Hebrew, it's the idea that not only do you listen, but that you listen with a mind to actually obey and do. So when he says this, today, if you would hear his voice, that is, if you would listen and obey, that's what he's talking about here. 
In essence, what he's saying is that part of, of worship is obedience in our lives. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, hearing and heeding God's word would be central, or God's word must be central if our worship, private or corporate, is to truly be Christian. It isn't enough for God to hear my voice. I must hear his voice or I must listen and obey to his voice as the word of God is read, preached, and taught. Now, when I was uh, in, in college and we were playing games, uh, in the midst of the games, uh, often a timeout would be called. And they'd call timeout because there was, we probably needed some rest. We needed some re- revitalization. So we would, we would get some water. We'd get some Gatorade and start slurping that down and, and trying to get refueled. But then there came a point where the coach called you in. You're sitting down, and he has some instructions he wants to give to you. He might want to encourage you. He might want to correct and say, no, this is not how you do this play. This is how you do it. All right? And so when he was doing this, it was really important that you were listening, playing on to carry that out. Now, unfortunately, there were some distractions. Okay? Sometimes you might pick up the Gatorade. Say, that's not my favorite kind of Gatorade. Can you get something else? So, you know, you want something else. Or there might be a distraction because there's that cheerleader over there on the other, other side of the courts. All right? That was, was back in my college days. All right? Or they might be distracted as mom and dad watch me. There's all kinds of distractions. And so if you went out of that huddle and you didn't listen and obey, when you went out there, I tell you what, the coach wasn't real happy. He wasn't really happy because what you took out of there wasn't what he told you to do, and therefore it didn't reflect well on him. And he let you know about it. God's letting us know about this in this passage. God's saying, hey, I, I don't want you to go through the motions, all right? I want you to take what I hear, what I'm here telling you, and as you break out of this huddle, I want you to carry it with you and put it into play so that when people see it, they look back to me as well. In essence, what he's saying is he's saying this. He's saying, I want you, the, the truths that you sing, the prayers that you pray, and the truth from my word that you hear on Sunday... I want you to take those things on Sunday, and I want you to carry them out. I want you to play them out on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, and Saturday. That's what I want. I don't want you to just come and do it on Sunday. I want you to do it every day. I want you to make worship a way of life. I want you to sing my praises. I want you to show your humility before me in the way that you live your life for my glory all throughout the week is what he's saying. And then he says, if you don't really believe this is true, he says, here's what God says. He, he has a little history lesson he wants to give. Look back in the text with me here. He wants to give an illustration of how this has gone wrong. He says, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Heart speaks of our mind, our will, our affections, and our desires. And as, as he says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, which means strife, as in the day of Massa, which means testing. In the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had not seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. I, they, they disgusted me. That's kind of, kind of the idea that he has here. And said that they are people who err in their what? Where do they err at? Say it. In their hearts. They err in their hearts. And they do not know my ways. That is, they, 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 they don't hear and do what I say. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, that they shall not enter into my rest. That is, they should not, and that generation did not go into the promised land. 
Now, let me set this up for you. Here's what happened. Here's, the, here's what he's talking about. It was a notorious event in the history of Israel. We find this where in, in Exodus 17, where the Israelites had just come out. They had just been delivered from Egypt. God had parted the Red Seas. And as he brought them through the Red Sea, not only did he just part them so they could get through, but he wiped out, uh, he wiped out the Egyptian army. And after he does that, you go on a few more chapters, and guess what they're doing? What's all that happened? I mean, they just saw all this stuff, and then they start complaining and grumbling. They start telling them, hey, we're hungry. What's your deal, Moses? Why aren't you feeding us? Come on, God. So God, in his graciousness, his goodness, he provides manna from heaven. He actually then provides meat, quail. You think that's the last time they grumbled? Nope. A couple chapters later, they start grumbling again. This time, I mean, they're grumbling after they had seen God part the seas, kill the Egyptian army, provide manna from heaven, give them uh, 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 meat of quails, and then they say, we're thirsty. We don't like this Gatorade, all right? Come, do something for us. So they're complaining again. And so God, in his graciousness, he provides water to come from a rock. Think that was the last time they grumbled? No. All right, their issue of grumbling was really an issue of faith. They had seen God do all these things. They had heard God promise his care for them, yet they chose not to believe. They hardened their hearts. They actually, at, at several points, they longed to go back to Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. And finally, it was so bad that God says, because of their disbelief and trust of God, he says, this generation is not going into the promised land. And his point, what it is, what the psalmist is making here, what God is saying to us, is that worship is a matter of a heart. The worship, he's saying, don't harden your heart. Don't distrust me. Take me at my word. And the way that you take me at your word is that you actually obey it and you act in response to it. He's saying, make worship a way of life. Now, how do we do this? How do we, how do we develop worship as a way of life? I just want to share four key applications with you. And this actually comes from Romans 12, 1 through 2. So look at Romans 12, 1 through 2 with me. How do I develop this worship as a way of life? Well, it says there, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is, how, how do we worship him? First thing is this. You must receive the mercies of God. The mercies of God that Romans speaks of, and as we'll, we'll go through here in our series in Romans, is first of all in chapters 1 through 3, verse 21, it proves the fact, it shows the fact, without a doubt, all of us are sinners. Every one of us are sinners in need of a Savior. Then from Romans chapter 3, verse 21, on to uh, 5, 21, it speaks about how we have a Savior who has provided justification for us. That is, He has provided a means where God could come alongside and declare us righteous. He could save us if we put our faith and our trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot truly worship God unless you first know God and have a personal relationship with Him. You must receive the mercies of God by faith and the personal work of Christ. Second, you must recall his mercies daily and dedicate your life to him. 
Look at that the phrase in there, present your bodies. That is actually in the Greek, that appears in a continuous aspect. This presenting of our bodies is not some one thing that we do, but that we present our bodies continually as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable for God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's something that we have to do every day. It's one of those things you have to get up every day and say, Lord, today I want to offer my life as an offering of worship to you. That's got to be a daily dedication. I don't know about you, I get all focused every day. We've got to come back to this. A third thing that we must do is renew our minds. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you want to worship God the way you should, we've got to know what that looks like. We've got to be in his word. We've got to be reading it. We've got to daily be putting off the things of the world and thinking Christ's thoughts in our lives. We've got to be renewing our mind. Then the last thing is rely on the Spirit to obey the God's word. This is actually pointed out in Romans chapter 8. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can live the Christian life. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit and daily dependence upon Him can we make worship a way of life. Without the Holy Spirit, I am like those Israelites in the wilderness. I'm complaining. I'm hardened of heart. But when I come and yield myself to the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, then He molds and shapes and fashions my heart in the way that it should be so that I might be an offering of worship to my great God. There's an old story about a man who had dreamed that an angel escorted him to church on Sunday. There he saw the keyboard musician playing vigorously. The praise team uh, singing. uh, The musicians playing their instruments with, with gusto. But the man heard no sound. The congregation was singing, but the, the sound was utterly muted. When the minister rose to speak, his, his lips moved, but there was no volume. In amazement, the man turned to his escort for an explanation. He said, this is the way it sounds in heaven, said the angel. You hear nothing because there is nothing to hear. The people are engaged in the form of worship, but their thoughts are on their other things and their hearts are far away. Fellowship. Let not heaven hear muted sounds from us. May we be a people that as we make worship a way of life, that when we come together corporately, that we sing with vibrancy and vigor because we believe in our great God. And then as we face our great God, that we, as because we believe it so much, we humble ourselves before Him. We remove pride from our lives and look up at Him fully and thereby offer authentic, genuine worship for our lives. Your God, we thank You. We praise You for Your Word, that You would speak to us your truths. We thank you for the privilege it is to worship you. Oh, what an awesome thing, Lord, to know that you have redeemed us from our sin, our slavery to sin, and you have made us new in Christ, thereby giving us an opportunity to live in relationship with you and to worship you as a way of life. That's what we are made for, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the body of believers here that you might spur us, Lord, to worship you fully from the heart. It's the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.